Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Tuesdays with Trey. Our next guest was a friend and a colleague, still is. He's in the House, uh, but not for long. He's the overwhelming favorite to win the Senate, the seat now held by Jim Inhofe, who is a senator from the great state of Oklahoma. Uh, This may actually be the quietest race for the United States Senate in the country. The media is not really talking about it, primarily, honestly, because it's like it's a Republican seat that is extraordinarily likely to remain a Republican seat. So there's not going to be a net gain or loss. But still, there are only 100 U.S. senators, and I think it's worth our time to get to know the ones that we can. Um, and uh, this guy, if he can stay alive between now and whenever the swearing-in date is, is likely to be one of those 100. Mark Wayne Mullen, how are you? Good. Dre, I appreciate that. I'm not sure I've been introduced that way, if he can stay alive, but you know me well because my wife had introduced me to say. <laughs> I do know you well, which is why I'm thrilled to talk to you. I want to I, I start with something. I, I just find it fascinating how people became what they are and got where they or I know a little bit of your life story, but tell us about life growing up as Mark Wayne Muller. Well, um, I was the youngest of seven. I, uh, I, and my family, the, the baby wasn't baby. The baby was called survival of the fittest. And, uh, so my parents worked hard. Uh, we didn't do with, uh, abundance. We had a pretty, pretty small place. Um, I moved out when I was 15. Uh, I, uh, I probably was, uh, I, I would tell you there's a judge in town and, a, and a, an attorney and my football coach that probably kept me out of uh, out of jail, uh, out of prison. In fact, my dad told me one time I was either going to end up in prison or end up successful. But I always had a good relationship with my parents, uh, but I was pretty ornery. Had a bad speech impediment, to be honest with you, Trey. I had a really bad speech impediment, and I learned to fight because I couldn't argue. So that temper continued for quite a while. Uh, it served me well, though, because it also created a tremendous amount of determination on me. I wasn't I wasn't content with just having a speech impediment. I wanted to go past that. So we had to work hard. Uh, I got married my high school sweetheart at 19 and she was 18. We're still married to this day, 25 years later and six kids later. Uh, we've been married 25 years and we have kids 19, 18 um, and 17 boys and then girls that are uh, 14 and 11. Three, we say, came natural, and three, we chose. So the bookends are adopted, and I think you've met all but Jace. Jace is a 19-year-old Trey, and he's the uh, he's the newest addition. We've had him about uh, about four and a half years, five years. Yeah, and well, so, well, my fondest memories are seeing your children, whom I felt very, very sorry for because you expected them to work as hard as you worked, and you expected yeah. them to get up when you got up and go to right. the gym and work out. And yeah. – uh, I wanted to be like Kevin McCarthy's kid or something, or just kind of <laughs> kind of sleeping in late and going to movies. But yeah, you see. said something. Yeah. You said something that I, I don't want to let. I don't. I don't want to miss a chance. Yeah. So you said you had a speech impediment growing up, and you're on right. the precipice of being in the United States Senate. Right. So I want to ask you two things. What would you say to a young person? that either has a speech impediment or something else where they are being made fun of at school? What would you say to the person that's being made fun of? And what would you say to the people who are tempted to belittle them? First of all, there was more to the story too. I, I have to share this one too. I, I had, my legs were all bent in 
my bad hips. You see me, I'm pretty dang athletic. Uh, but um, I wore braces like Forrest Gump. So I was a double whammy. I was a double target. Uh, I'm not going to say handle it like I did, but I learned to fight pretty quick. And, uh, and I, I still cannot stand bullies to this day, which probably leads me to politics, right? I got in it. Uh, I got in it quite a bit. I just want to tell, tell people it sticks with you. It doesn't. It doesn't go away. I, I, I still remember some of the stuff that happened. I still remember some people I like today, but I'm not sure I'd help them change a flat unless they were in a lot of trouble. Uh, I, I, uh, it, it's rough. And the people that's going through it, there's a way out. Here's the biggest thing that happened to me is you believe you're, especially with the speech impediment. I think it affects you more with the speech impediment because it affects so many things. It affects your reading. If you have a speech impediment, typically you don't pronounce words right. So how do you want to sound them out? Uh, for me, I didn't hear syllables, so I couldn't hear the syllable to sound the word out. So I thought I was an idiot. And a lot of people think that they're not, they're not smart because of the, 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 the issue that they're dealing with, but really it's just a gift you have. And, it, and when I say a gift, it turned into be my biggest gift because I didn't let it define me. I decided in, I decided in, in third grade, I was going to find out what was going on. And I decided in sixth grade when they diagnosed what was happening, I didn't hear syllables that it was up to me to figure out a different way to learn. And so when you, when you and I are speaking in person, you always notice I'm, I'm looking at you, but I'm, I'm not looking at your eyes and I'm staring at your lips because I had to learn how to speak by your tongue placement, which is why Spanish is very difficult because Spanish, they stick their tongue in the back of their mouth. And, and we don't thank, thank goodness in English. We, we speak with our tongue in the front and, uh, and it, but you can figure out a way to get around it, but it becomes determination. So your past is your past. What happens is you can, you can build strength with it if you choose to. Um, it did affect me because I allowed it also negatively to affect me because of a temper. Once I got over my speech impediment, I had to then go back and relearn everything. I had to learn how to read, not through the way they teach you at school. I had to learn how to read through memorization. But that doesn't mean that you can't do it. You just learn different. But when you get there, man, success is so much sweeter because you work so much harder for it. For those that are bullying, um, I'm not going to tell everybody to punch them in the face, but man, I did. <laughs> I just, I, I let my hands fly way too much. I ended up on the backside of a few of those too. Uh, but I, uh, but those that do it, one day you're all going to grow up and that person you're picking on likely is going to be your boss because uh, you think you're building yourself up by belittling somebody else. That, that, that character flaw is going to continue. And so you're probably going to be the person that's going to blame everybody the rest of your life why you didn't succeed. Well, I'm with you, brother. I, I understand human shortcomings, uh, prosecuted a lot of them. I cannot stand bullies. That would be number one on my list of things that I do not like. People that pick on uh, people that are susceptible or, uh, or weaker uh, perceived. I just, I cannot stand it. All right. Yeah. You mentioned fight. There's no word in politics used more now than fight. Right. But when you say fight, you really mean fight. You were a fighter. I don't mean like a rhetorical fighter. I mean, with your fist fighter, <laughs> how in the world did you pick that? Um, well, I picked it because I, as I said, as a kid, I, I learned how to fight pretty well and I'm not a big guy. I mean, I'm five foot nine, 180, 180 pounds. 
but um, but when I had somebody tell me they were going to pay me to fight, and I thought, man, I fought every weekend for free. And I thought, man, that's a great idea. And then they made it a profession. I was like, I can become a professional at this. That's that's really how it came about. I I was I, I when you certain things become your reputation, right? Like Gaddy, you, you, everybody knows you because um, you're witty with your words and you're extremely intelligent, and it becomes who you are. And it, sometimes you get tired because you're always expected to be on all the time. I mean, when you when someone asks you a question or you get pushed into a situation, they're expecting you to be you all the time. And when, when you're, when you're a fighter, especially in school, that becomes your, that becomes who you are. And so you're expected to do it all the time. And then that expectations turns in, Hey, that's the best way I've moved around. I went to a lot of different schools. I went to four different schools just in a two year period. And, uh, and it was an easy way to get known. Uh, but when I got out at, when I was wrestling in college, I had a buddy ask me if he, if I come in and work out with him. And, uh, and a few weeks later, they, I got offered an opportunity to fight and they said, they're going to pay me $500. And I was like, man, I've been fighting for free almost every weekend for, I don't know, eight years now. Now you're going to pay me. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that's really no no romantic story that's just how it happened <laughs> well you know you said something in the midst of that it's one of the most perceptive things i've heard in a long time when you when your reputation is being funny then people expect you to be funny all the time and it's right. exhausting uh which is why a lot of comedians really aren't that happy uh in life it is exhausting when people expect you to be a fighter it's hard to break out of the, I guess, the prison of other people's expectations. I will say in your defense, I never saw you fight uh, right. in Congress, uh, not with your fist. I never saw it. But now that I know for $500, I can get you to do something. Can I give <laughs> you Mick Mulvaney and John Ratcliffe's addresses? Yeah. I'll, I'll even double it to a thousand. <laughs> I'll do, I'll do those for free. That's All right. <laughs> God bless you. All right. Yeah. It, I, I'm, so I'm researching you. In addition to being the quiet United, the quietest United States Senate race in the history of mankind. I mean, literally, you do a Google search on your race. I mean, you got to look and look and look and right. look. So but here's what I found. Uh, you're a member of Cherokee Nation. To those of us that live in states that do not have a, a, a big Native American population. What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to you? Uh, how important is that in the state of Oklahoma? Well, I, I'm to go back to fighting thing. I'm Cherokee and Irish, so I had no choice but to fight, by the way. It was just in my blood. Uh, you know, for me, I didn't know there was anything special about being Cherokee because in where I grew up, we've always we've always grown up in Indian country. So my family stopped walking where we still raise our kids to this day. I mean, that's, it's, it, uh, we have a pretty good sized ranch, but a small part of it, 250 acres of it is the original Indian allotment land, which is just a mile into Oklahoma outside of Arkansas. So at that time is territory. In fact, on our property, I have a, I have a, a place that says, um, uh, for survey in it that has Arkansas and then territory. It doesn't say Indian territory, it's just this territory. And so it's, we've always been there. So I didn't know there was anything special about being Cherokee it, it, because it's what you always grown up with. It's like Indian health services. I didn't know there was anything wrong with Indian health services because that's all the health care we had as a kid. We always went to Indian health, Indian health clinics. It wasn't honestly, Trey, until I went to Congress. So, the, 
politics was not anywhere in my world. It wasn't until the EPA came in and shut down one of my companies in 2011 that I even thought about running for office. I didn't own a suit, didn't own a tie, didn't own a tie tie, never went to a political event. My first political event I ever went to in my life was when I stood up and said I was running for Congress back in August of 2011. Till then, I, w- I, I was totally new to politics. So I didn't know there was a political difference in, 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 in IHS or in, in, if there was an issue with Indian country because it's my world. It wasn't until I showed up to Washington, D.C. after I was elected and Tom Cole, who's Chickasaw from Oklahoma, said, congratulations, we have now doubled our Native American caucus. And I looked at him and he says, well, I'm Cherokee or you're Cherokee, I'm Chickasaw. That makes two. We doubled. That was the first time that I really thought there was anything special about being Cherokee because where I'm from, everybody's Indian or wants to be Indian. Because if you're Indian, you get free health care. I mean, that's why they, they want it. And we live in a pretty, pretty rural and poor area. And so uh, it, it became it took a different uh, a different identity or a different meaning when I got into when I got to Washington. And it still means different when I'm at home. It's just the way we are. Uh, but when, but in D.C., you're expected to be an expert on it. Uh, you're expected to know the differences. What's funny is you don't know you know so much because you never learned it. You grew up with it. And so when people are talking about it, you go, yeah, whoa, yeah, that, that, no, that's not right. And so it's, uh, it's pretty neat. In D.C., it means completely different than it, does, than, than it does back at home. And back home, you're just it. So I don't really think it's any different. I don't look at it any different. We all grew up the same. We don't live in teepees. I, was, I can't believe I actually got that. I actually got that question in D.C. And they were dead serious. Do you guys still live in teepees? I was like, yes, I raised all six kids in a single teepee. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just, uh, you can't I'll, make it I'll up. Bet that was I'll bet that was not the dumbest question you've received since you've been in D.C. Maybe one of nope. them, but maybe not the dumbest. It ranks, up, it ranks up in the top, probably top five. All right. So when we were there, I knew that you were good with your hands. I I don't mean fighting. I mean, I knew that you work with your hands. I knew that you were, I think I had you kind of in the plumbing business. Right. And then I go and look and that that's not all those. That's not the only business that you have. Yes, you have that business, but you've done more than that. Right. Well, my wife and I, mind you, we got married with nothing. And so my wife and I got everything. Um, we haven't got divorced because we're too afraid to give up half. <laughs> so we're not supposed to stay together. Uh, so we've done everything together. But uh, it started with plumbing. Then it went to, um, and then we started expanding plumbing. And then I started buying out all the trades that touch us because with plumbing, you're the first in and last out. So if there's a trade in the middle of it that's causing a disruption, you don't get your money. So I figured out these guys are good workers, but they're horrible managers. So we started buying up all the trades between us. Uh, and then I was like, you know, wait, uh, we bank all the time. So let's get a bank. Uh, we eat all the time. Let's get a restaurant. Uh, so wherever we spent money, I just started thinking, well, why don't I spend money with myself? If I'm going to, if I'm going to be spending it constantly and my wife's family was in the grocery business. So we had that one covered. Uh, the only thing we don't have cover yet is a doctor and an, and an attorney. And I've paid plenty for both people to be educated. <laughs> you need to you need to get one of your children to become a lawyer. You will save so much money, Mark Wayne, if hey, you can have a lawyer in the family. I'm planting two of them, and unfortunately, I say unfortunately, um, I guess it's um, 
It's uh, the, 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 uh, the really, really talented kids in my family are my daughters. And so one of them are going to have to be an attorney. And then, uh, and then one of them, I think is going to have to be a doctor too, because I think the boys are, um, they're probably going to be like me. They're going to have to work with their hands because a smart person in our family is my wife. I just worked hard. <laughs> All right. Speaking of working hard, one of my favorite memories I have at a million times of you is early in the morning. I'm down at the gym not to work out, just to get ready. Why is there it you are. walking in holding your shorts in, in your hand <laughs> so they don't fall? I always remember that. <laughs> well, I didn't need enough or else I bought clothes too big. But you're in there not only working out, Mark Wayne, but it is the most eclectic, apolitical, bipartisan, whatever word you want to use, group. You could not tell the R's from the D's, and and you were leading it most of the time, but other people led it. And Cinema was there, and Tulsi Gabbard was there, and Joey Kennedy was there. Does that still happen? That I mean, that was such a refreshing thing to see. Now, you may fight starting at 10 o'clock in the morning, but at least until then, Everybody was kind of doing the same thing. Does that still go on? Yeah, we. At one time, we had Martha McSally and Kirsten Cinema running against each other in the Senate, working out with us every morning. Uh, that's when I instilled: if you talk politics, we're doing burpees, and because they would come and bicker at each other. Because if you remember their race, it was ugly. And uh, and then I had Seth Moulton and Tulsi Gabbard that was running against Donald Trump for president, who was in there. I had Kevin McCarthy. Uh, we had Speaker Ryan, uh, Christy Nome, Bruce Westerman, uh, Jason Smith. Um, I'm missing some people. Oh, um, let's not forget uh, Aaron Shock. Yeah. And so we had we had just we had eight R's and eight D's that worked out almost every single morning. And and so we had a group of 16. Sometimes our group would get as high as 20. And I mean, we just put them through the ringer. I just I just took out. I mean, we had a good time. And let me tell you, that group we're still all really good friends. So we still, I talk to Joe Kennedy all the time. Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, she's like a sister to me. Of course, Christy, we go up to South Dakota to see her all the time. And, and uh, I don't talk to Kirsten that much, but I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll talk a lot when I get over in the Senate. Uh, Martha, I visit with all the time. So we, we all still talk a lot. Um, and, but there's still a group of us. In fact, Jason Crow works in there. You know, Jason Crow, you know him. He, he's the oh, one yeah. that led the impeachment. Um, I have Seth Moulton still works out with us. Josh Gunheimer, who you're talking about some great stories. You ought to have him on and talk to him, talk to him about Bill Clinton. He was Bill Clinton's speechwriter. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah. And he has, he is, has the funniest stories and just, it just great. He's in charge of music. And I don't know why he thinks Elton John is a workout music. That is the, <laughs> that is ridiculous. So I finally got him changed where he plays some ACDC so we can get after it when we're working out. Uh, but there's still a there's Bruce Westman still works out with us. Dave Joyce has started working out with us. Darren LaHood works out with me every single morning now. Um, and, and so there's still there's about a group of eight of us now that work out every morning. The, it hasn't really recovered from COVID. A lot of people still haven't started working out again yet. Uh, but it's still we still it's still the same thing, man. If you talk politics, we do burpees. Uh, we'll talk politics after 730. So we start we get after it at 630 at 730. If you want to start politics, talk it. But right now, let's just get after it and get to know each other and, and enjoy enjoy people's misery. And my goal is to make somebody puke every workout. 
That's my goal. <laughs> Kevin, Kevin McCarthy decided to invest in one of those My 23 and Me or a DNA profile, and he claims it came back elite power athlete. That that is his genetic profile. He swears by that. Have you seen any evidence of that is my question. No, but he he swears by that. But he also tells everybody he broke my nose. So funny, you know, you remember 2013, we're in a shutdown, how awful that was, right? I mean, it was three weeks. We don't like each other after three days and we're together for three weeks. Um, It was politically, it was, it was, it was, it was not good for us. Um, and right after we opened back up, it was, I forget what night it was, but it, it was late. I said, Kevin, let's go box. Cause at that time I was teaching him how to box. He wanted to learn how to box. So I said, well, let's go box. And we go down there and we're boxing and I put him in a circle cause he bounced around a lot. So I put him in a circle and he kept bouncing. So I, I put a, a, a stretchy rope between us on our legs. I said, you can't get out of this circle and you can't run. You can hit me anywhere you want. And I'll only hit you from the shoulders down. I put boxing or I put uh, three ounce gloves on him, MMA gloves, open finger gloves. And I put boxing gloves on me and he comes across, he throws a punch and, um, and he hits me right across the nose, but it's the Velcro and he takes all the height off my nose and I'm oh, bleeding gosh. like a stuck pig. And he threw up his hands. He says, I'm stopped. I broke your nose. That's all I need to know. And I was like, you didn't break my nose. He's like, I broke your nose. <laughs> he told, he tells everybody that, that he broke because he's an elite athlete. And he said, yeah. only an elite athlete can break a professional boxer's <laughs> nose without any experience. <laughs> Look, McCarthy's a big boy. I would not want to get hit by him. Uh, but, but I'm still going to put my money on you. And I wouldn't be walking around saying I broke your nose if I didn't really do it. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. well uh, he's a leader. He can do what he wants. <laughs> I guess. We're going to pause right there and more of my interview with Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen next. All right. I want to ask you about something. I wasn't there for it. I watched everything I could watch. I've read everything I can read about it. I don't want to ask you about the politics of this day, but I want to ask, I mean, you're not, uh, you don't scare easily. Um, Grew up tough, been a fighter your whole life. You had a pretty unique vantage point from which to view January the 6th. Did you experience emotions on that day that you never had before and never had since? Give us a sense of what someone who's not afraid of much of anything is on the floor of the house. What were you thinking? Well, um, there's another part of my bio that I don't talk about, Trey, and I'm not going to talk about it here. I'll just skim over it. I used to do special assignments outside of DOD. So unfortunately, that wasn't the first time that I've seen a situation like that, just not inside the United States. Just never thought I'd see that inside the United States, and uh, and I, that's not part of my bio. I don't talk about it because it's it's a it's a uh, a sticky subject with my wife and I, and I did that for for years. Uh, I think my last contract was in 2010 or 2011, and then I uh, then I was asked to go back over and do and, and do something in 2016 when I was actually in office. Um, so. It wasn't new to me. It was different. I know you got a lot of questions. I see it in your eyes. We can just have a discussion longer offline on this one. And uh, so when it first happened, um, you can tell real quick the Capitol Police didn't have a clue what they were doing. I'm not saying that's on that's on, wrong on them. That's wrong on their training. They wasn't there. There was no contingency plans. They never prepared for anything like this, which is crazy considering you're the Sergeant Arms and Capitol Police. You would think you knew this. 
Uh, I sat on Hipsy. Uh, I know they had plenty of warning. They had plenty of warning to know that this was happening. Uh, they knew intimately that it was going to take place by January 3rd. Uh, they knew in December that it was probably going to take place. So they had plenty of warning to do something, but they didn't do anything ill-prepared. Capitol Police started running around and made a very bad decision by the time when they said they were locking everybody in, including those in the balcony. So they locked, members never sat in the balcony, but because of COVID, they had special restrictions. They put people in the balcony. The balcony, as you know, doesn't lead to the floor. The only way you can get out of the balcony is through the halls. So they locked the balcony and locked everybody in. And, and the lieutenant, uh, when he said that, he told everybody when they, if they break through the door to lay down. At this point, I stood up and I said, sir, you're wrong. I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but you're wrong. He's sweating. And I said, uh, uh, I said, sir, you, you need to get people out of here. Get them out. He says, and, he, he, and I said, I'm not trying to run over you. I'm not trying to tell you what to do but you're wrong. If you lay people down in a riot, people die. They get trampled. You don't lay down in a riot. And I said, what's your contingency plan? He said, we don't have one. I said, get those back doors open, get them out down the stairs. And then I went to the front and started grabbing um, uh, the, uh, the stuff over in actually in the cloakroom to start blocking the door. Capitol police came over and started helping me. And, uh, and really my idea wasn't to keep them from coming in. The idea was, is if, if we can make that a choke point, then we can pile people up there. I never felt like I was going to die. I never, I never felt like I was, a lot of people say I thought I was going to die. I never, I felt like I was going to get bumps and bruises, but I knew that I was willing to, to kill somebody else if I had to. I never was concerned with my life at all. Um, but other people had never experienced that, that they were, but I wanted to build a choke point and a choke point. If I can pile people up in this choke point, then we can probably stop everybody from coming in because there's really only a use, only a, a few fighters that's in a mob. Most people are just going along. And when they see that there's going to be pain inflicted, they typically scatter. They're, they're not, they're not in it for real. They're in it because they're in it because of emotions. And it was funny because they were pushing on the doors. And if you, you know, those doors actually pull back. Right. <laughs> they would have they pulled those doors back. That's when they had to come in. So here or that, that just, that just helped happened. Uh, but it was, it was, it was surreal to me because I was there. I saw, um, the young lady get shot. Uh, I, uh, um, you know, I was, I spoke through the door through the people that, um, that were hit it. And I asked them that were hitting the door and I asked them, is it worth it? Uh, and a guy said, what do you mean? And I said, is it worth it? You almost died because by then they had knocked the glass out. We thought it was shots fired. And I, and um, I don't know whose detail it was. I don't know if it was McCarthy's detail, if it was Cleese's detail, but I, you, you would know every one of the guys that were there. I won't mention them by name, but if I did, you would know they, each one of them there. They had their guns drawn, pointing at the door, and, and I started yelling, uh, no shot, no shot, because I, I, it took me a second. At first, I reacted like it was a gunshot. It sounded like a gunshot. Then I realized it was a gun punch or a glass punch, and which is a charge. It's got a charge on it. So a glass punch has a, has a CO2 charge, and you hit a glass and it pops. Um, and, but I didn't recognize it at first. It took me a split second. And that split second, I'm surprised shots weren't fired because everybody else started yelling shots fired. And when I went to the glass, I'll tell you, Trey, I looked through that glass. I saw people there with a ball bat. I saw people there had a ball bat with, with wire wrapped around it. I saw um, uh, uh, improvised weapons in their hands. I didn't see a gun or anything like that, but I saw that they, they weren't, it wasn't just peaceful protesters. I know there was a lot of them that was there, but not all of them were peaceful protesters. And I hate it. Nothing should took in place on January 6th. It should have never happened at all. The whole thing was a bad deal, but there was some people there that had ill intentions. And so I knew if they came through the door, there was going to be a fight in our hands. 
Fortunately, it didn't happen. Unfortunately, someone did lose their life. But I tell you, I went to the triage center immediately afterwards. The triage center was down in the basement of the rape room where the first aid station is. You know what I'm talking about? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and they turned that into a make-believe triage center. I shook 50, 50 police officers' hands that were had broken noses. I saw one with his eyeball hanging out and he's holding it like this. They can't evacuate because they can't get medical attention in there. Um, broken arms, busted heads. Uh, and I thought these guys, it looked like a, it looked like a, 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 a triage center at a fob, a Ford operating base. Um, I, I hadn't seen anything like that inside the United States ever, ever. And, and I thought, what restraint do these guys show when they're getting hit and beat? Every one of them had the ability to use lethal force. They could have at any given time used lethal force and Capitol police without instructions completely on their own. They still use restraint and what a commitment that they have. And they, they I mean, there could have been, it could have been a lot more than one individual lose their life, but the whole thing was just ridiculous. And it took me, it was probably two weeks afterwards and it still bothered me like I, this is the first time trey i've talked about this um since a week after it because i quit i refused to do any interviews or anything at first i was doing a ton of interviews and it was just like everybody's got their opinion about it and people get all worked up about what happened with with the young lady that got shot and should it happen shouldn't it happen uh, and everybody has an opinion and and it's just okay we, you weren't there so i get you have an opinion but i'll tell you what actually took place it shouldn't happen period i don't care what you think about the election it shouldn't happen and uh, January 6th shouldn't have happened. And I'm, I'm sitting there and uh, my wife said, uh, Mark, Wayne, this is this is bothering you, isn't it? I said, it is. It really is. Because I can block things off pretty good. I just don't talk about stuff. It's simple for me. Uh, if you don't talk about it, you don't remember it. Well, that's my theory. You actually do sometimes, but it's just not fresh. And uh, and so I, 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 uh, I said, I, I do. And I said, I can't figure it out. And she goes, I do. And I said, and I hate it when my wife's right, by the way, it really bugs me. I don't, I hate when she's right. I'm just like, whatever. Uh, but she goes, she goes, are you willing to kill an American? And I sat there and I looked at her and I almost got emotional by it. And, uh, and I said, uh, I said, you're right. And I actually got up and walked out, but it was good for me to hear it because then I could figure out why I was emotional because I couldn't figure out why I was emotional. And it was sad that I was there that day. And I knew I was going to fight for all my, I mean, there were still members there. And I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're my friend at that point, and I will do whatever I have to to protect you just like you would do to protect me if you had the means to do it. And uh, and um, and I know without question what I was willing. In fact, one time there was a young lady that was standing beside me. It was an, a, an officer, Capitol Police officer. I won't mention her name, but I know her name. Uh, I said, I said, ma'am, if they come through that door, you know I'm going to take your gun away from you, don't you? And uh, she said, I can't give it to you. And I said, I understand that. But I said, you know, I'm going to take that gun with her because she was standing there, but she wasn't going to use her weapon. She was she was standing there because she was told to stand there. But she was really, really nervous. And you could see it on her face. And I said, I understand that. I said, uh, I said, but I'm going to take it from you. And she says, if I drop it, you can pick it up. And she says, I said, where are you going to drop it? She says, on that chair. And and I know what I can do with one. And I guarantee it's a 17 round mag. I, I assumed it would be. But I guarantee where I can place eight rounds in a deadly spot uh, and probably all 17, but I would hit each person probably twice. So, and I wouldn't want to do that, but I was prepared to do that. 
because when I look through the window, I know what they were prepared to do. I'm not saying everybody in that room was prepared to do that. That was in that. It was in the Capitol. But I know those people binging on that door and the words I heard coming out of their mouth, they were no, no question. They were willing to use force. And, uh, and, and so all that stuff was going through my head. I know that's a lot more depth than what you're expecting to get, but all that stuff was going through my head. And in the end of the day, what ended up taking place is we lost the argument about the election at that point. January 6th became the conversation and still the conversation to this day. And it's going to be the conversation from now on. Anytime anybody talks about the election, what happened in November, they're going to be talking about January 6th. And, and, and it distracts from what actually should have been happening, what went wrong January, in November. What, what can we do to make sure nothing like that ever happens again? And instead, it's all January 6th. Uh, and it's just a, it's a mess up situation. And, and it's part of a dark spot in history, I think. You know, Mark, when we look back on the different jobs we've had in life and the job that I, I love the most, um, which is why I was uh, just so transfixed in listening to you, uh, is the courtroom where opinions don't matter. It doesn't matter what some commentator thinks. What matters are the eyewitnesses. What someone saw, heard, experienced, perceived. So I was transfixed because you were an eyewitness. And you also proved another point. Yes, there's a lot of firearms violence in our country. No question. People use guns frequently to kill people. But I have had people killed, victims in homicide cases killed with almost everything you can imagine, including your hands. Mm. So the notion that because there was no gun, there was no weapon is incorrect. I've had people killed with baseball bats, had people killed with shovels, had people killed with you name it, including just the hands. Absolutely. So, you can show people out. I can put you out in 13 seconds. I guarantee you I can put you out in 13 seconds. Um, well, I'm going to take your word for it. And I don't want you <laughs> to prove that to me. I want I want to end on a happier note. You are on a committee that I try to explain it to people. I'm teaching a class at Walford College and I say it's a point system to get on the House Intelligence Committee. It's a point system. The speaker or the minority leader points at you and says you're on the committee. <laughs> There's no steering committee. Nope. Um, it is so hard to get on. It's the most highly coveted. I mean, Radcliffe got on it. Of course, with his background, you would expect him to be on it. And and Will Hurd was on it and the uh, former CIA. Tell us what that I mean, when you through don't obviously I'm not going to ask you about anything you can't talk about and you wouldn't tell me. But as you sit on that committee and survey the world, what do you see? First of all, it's it's an honor. It's probably the single biggest honor of my life to be able to be on the Intel committee. I, I uh um, is the biggest decision I had to make to run for Senate was that I wasn't going to be on the Intel committee in the house anymore. I absolutely feel like every day I go there, I think I'm the luckiest guy to be able to be on this committee. Uh, I get to know about the nation's secrets. We get to do work that most people will never know about. I mean, when I used to fight, I loved training, but I hated actually fight night because you train for the fight, you fight for the show. I didn't like fighting for the show. Uh, it's kind of like my other part of my background. I don't ever talk about my other part of the background uh, because it's it wasn't why we did it. Um, 
uh, and being on Intel, I get to do that stuff. Oh, and I get to keep a secret from my wife and she can't get mad at me. That's even cooler. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the, you know, being part of the Intel committee, it's a small niche uh, group. Uh, we deal with um, all intelligence committee. We see the great things that's, that the agencies do. We also see the bad stuff. We see the bureaucracy. Uh, but, you know, you talk about, you know, the seventh floor of the Hoover building with the FBI, we see how bad they do. But what they don't see is what the FBI guys do in the field. We get to see that stuff. We get to know their tradecraft. We get to see what they're doing all the time. Uh, we get to see the other 16 agencies because most people think FBI and CIA, they don't think about the other agencies, the intelligence gathering agencies that are doing things down there. Uh, and, and, and so, the, the idea that I get to be trusted with that and we can be read into these situations it's amazing. But then you see the volatility that's going on around the world, too. Uh, we had we had um, two emergency sessions in the last uh, six weeks. Until then, we had never had a session. I walked out of both of those trade with my with 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 my with goosebumps on my arms and and, and concerned about uh, the direction that we're going and and what's happening. And I'm not trying to play politics here. I'm just telling you what it is. Because of a very weak president and what is taking place, it's extremely concerning because it's causing a shifting of power and people are fighting and willing to do whatever they can because they see the, the, the hole that is left without the Americans' leadership around the world and the vacuum that that's creating and uh, and the opportunity for bad actors to take advantage of it. Uh, it it's 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 concerning. I mean, it truly is concerning. But then I get to be part of that decision making. That is uh, that that uh, that gives me a little bit of excitement that at least I can help affect the outcome. But the ultimate you can't control the commander in chief. And I'll, I'll use this, for example, um, we were within uh, within probably a week, maybe two weeks from the war in Ukraine ending back a while back ago. You'll remember when I tell you this, what happened. Putin had asked for four things. He had asked for, um, he had asked for, uh, and this isn't, this is open stuff. So I'm not giving you any intel. I'm just telling you because all this is open source now. So Putin had asked for four things. He'd asked for, uh, for um, uh, uh, Ukraine to become a neutral state. You heard uh, Zelensky go out immediately and start saying, we'll be a neutral state. He asked uh, for, uh, for Crimea to become um, uh, annexed into Russia, be able to be a neutral area or annexed into Russia. That wasn't necessarily agreed on, but I believe it could have been agreed on, considering that Crimea has been in Russia's control now for um, since 2014, I think. And, uh, and but, but Zelensky did say that any Russian sympathizers, uh, Russian loyalist is what he used, well, could, it has a safe place to go within Ukraine if they want to leave and there won't be any questions asked. So that signaled that there, he was allowing them to go to Crimea. He asked for uh, number three, for the ports to be uh, in, in Russia's control. Wasn't going to happen. We're not going to allow Russia to control 25% of that region's food supply coming in and out. Uh, and he wanted uh, Zelensky's army to lay down their arms and dissolve. Wasn't going to happen. But he was possibly going to get two of the four things, which is enough for him to spend why he came in there to liberate 
Russians from the oppression of, of Ukraine and in Crimea. Going to give him plenty of plenty of room for him to go, and that we wasn't going to have to worry about about, and that and that they kept the West from their border by by Ukraine becoming a neutral state. The same week these negotiations are going on, President Biden goes to Europe. You remember this? He's talking to the 82nd Airborne, who is feared. Feared the 82nd Airborne is feared in um, in Europe because of the history they have during the during World War II. I mean, they think the 82nd Airborne is our is our soft community. I mean, they they think they are the they are it. And he's talking to the 82nd Airborne. He's telling them what they're going to see when they go into when they go into to to Ukraine and and what these battle hardened individuals are going to see in war. A 40-year-old or 40-year career politician is telling these battle-hardened guys what they're going to see in Ukraine when they go. We have never discussed, ever discussed sending troops into Ukraine. It never has been a conversation. And the president, Biden, makes this mistake on national TV talking to these guys what they're going to see when they get to Ukraine. Our phones lit up, man. It was like, what is going on? What happened? What are you guys talking about? Even from our partners in Ukraine, they're like, what the heck is this all about? The, the next day, he's talking to, uh, to the UN and he says, Putin can't stand power. Mind you, never a conversation, not even something that came on. That same day, Zelensky goes to the mics and says, diplomacy has left. We need weapons. The deal was off because... All Putin heard was, even if this deal goes through, they're going to put people in Ukraine and they're going to come after me and remove me from power. I say to this day, everybody that's dying in Ukraine is dying because of President Biden. It, it, and it's a strong statement, but it's true. Stuff like that is what we're privy to know up front and, and now it's public knowledge. I wasn't the first person to talk about this. This is public knowledge now. Um, it's, it's stuff like that, that, that in the intel, we get to have a front row seat to that. And we, we get to be part of these conversations. And I just think, and there's a whole lot more to it, of course, what's going on in China, what's going on in Taiwan, uh, what's going on in Iran, uh, what's happening still yet in Afghanistan, uh, it's, 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 it's very, it's very neat work, but it takes a lot of work. And it's one of the only committees, and this is what I think is best that all the members have to do the work. Right. There's no staff, the member, this, the committee has a staff, but you don't have a staff, your staff, your LD doesn't work on this. You as a member have to do it. And man, you, you spend all your time reading it. You do all your time with the research. And that is, and you can't help but build a relationship with people on your committee, even across the aisle. The people that you don't have to that you that you have to work with. I mean, you, I don't actually. There's only a few over there that I actually work with, but you you still build those strong relationships with those over there. The bad thing is, is I'm ranker over um, readiness and and, um, uh, uh, and and over readiness and the uh, and the warfighter and. Um, and my, my chairman is, is, is Fang Fang, um, Swalwell. <laughs> Eric Swalwell. <laughs> That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, you know, you put your finger on it. I was on ethics and intel. Those are two committees where the member, I mean, staff can't see what you're working on because of the confidentiality of ethics and also intel. And 
I've had Jimmy Heim, excuse me, Congressman Jim Heim on on my show. I, I, I really look, we don't ever vote the same, probably never will. But but I, I really enjoy listening to him. He's a smart, hardworking guy. On the committee, he lines up with us more than he does not. He's on Intel on the floor. We vote totally different, as you said, but he he's he's sharp and he knows his stuff. Yeah, there are very, very few dumb road scholars from what I from what I hear. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I want to ask, we talked about some heady stuff. I want to let you go with three uh, what I hope to be fun questions. What is your dream? I mean, you've got a dozen kids, two dozen jobs, and a US Senate race. So I don't need to ask you what your dream job is because you've already probably already had it. But what have you not done that you would say that would be my dream job. Dream job? Dream job. I mean, I'd love to be on the college football playoff committee. I mean, I'm easy. <laughs> I, I'm easy. I, I'd love to do that. Watch college football for a living. Uh, you know, it's funny. Joe Kennedy asked me the same thing. And uh, my wife, I have promised to uh, take her for 10 years to Fiji. We're supposed to do it on our 15th anniversary. Um, I was running for Congress. Our anniversary is June 14th. Our, our um, uh, primary is June 28th. Didn't work out. Uh, so I said, we'll do it for our 25th. Our 25th was this year. Uh, and I just happened to be running for Senate. <laughs> so my dream job just for her, I'd be the ambassador of Fiji. <laughs> well, Mark Wayne, I don't give marriage advice, but... It sounds to me like you better take her to Fiji at some point because right now you're over two. Oh, I know. I know. I wouldn't put, I, I listen, Drew, I would have divorced me a long time ago. Why she puts up with me, I don't know, but uh, I sure love her for it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I'm going to, who knows? Maybe one of our friends will be the president one day and they'll offer you the ambassadorship to Fiji. <laughs> Tell us someone you get along really, really well in the house with that might surprise others. Well, I mean, that would surprise others. Uh, I think one of the oddest couples out there is Jason Smith and I. Uh, we're about as different as night and day. Jason Smith's going to be the going to be the uh, the next uh, chairman, I think, of Ways and Means. Um, great guy. Uh, he is. Um, I wouldn't consider athletic at all. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's being charitable. Yes. He is a great guy. I love him. No, yeah. he, he was not an MMA fighter before he got no. to Congress. No, uh, our personalities couldn't be different. Uh, and uh, and but he's my best friend. And and so when people see us, they're like, they don't get it. But he's as loyal as they come. And, uh, and people will be surprised when I say that, that we're actually, we're, I mean, literally, literally best friends. The guy's never been married. He's 43 years old. By the way, anybody that's single out there, it's worth a shot. He does want to get married. Uh, but <laughs> Hey, look, if you got to marry somebody, the chairman of ways and means be a pretty good person to marry. And he has no kids. Uh, and I have six. So we're, but people are typically, you're not surprised, but people are surprised. If you were to see him Googling, look him up and then see me, you would think we're best friends. But then Josh Gutmeimer too. Uh, Josh and I are, are actually really good friends. I, I mean, really good friends. He is, uh, he, he's somebody that, uh, that we don't really discuss politics that much at all. We leave that out of it. But he's someone that actually comes from a, a, a logical perspective when he's talking about it. He, I would consider him, Someone that actually represents what our founding fathers wanted us to represent your backyard, but don't tell other people how to rep how to represent their backyard. 
you know, as representat- as representatives, there's a big difference between a Republican from me, from rural America, uh, rural Oklahoma, than Tom Cole from from as a Republican from Norman, Oklahoma. There's a difference, even though we're Republicans, there's a difference because we're raised different. Our founding fathers wanted us to represent our backyards, and therefore we have different opinions. Um, and a lot of people want to tell you how to run your backyard. Don't tell me how to mow my backyard. It's my backyard. And Josh is that is that guy. He he sees the difference, but he he he'll debate you on it, but he doesn't demonize you for it. And which I, I respect that. All right, your favorite committee in the house, Hipsy, is Hipsy. Yeah. If memory serves me correctly, the gentleman from Oklahoma, Mr. James Lankford, is on Senate Intel. Ain't no way in the world they're going. I think he is. There's no way in the world. Oh, he was. He, he was. was. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. So um, if, if I were to ask you, what's your dream committee in the Senate? I'm guessing it's Senate Intel. Sissy is what they call it. I, the irony of that, I don't understand it. <laughs> but, Sissy, yes. So, and uh, um, and so uh, I would love to be on that. I mean, I, our, Senate Armed Services is a committee I'm going after. Obviously, that's my first committee pick. Uh, but we'd love to get on Sissy at some point. And I, James probably does have first shot up because he only served two years and I imagine he can get back on, but I, I'm going to miss it dearly. As I said, that was such a hard decision for me to leave because I, I just know the important work that we're doing and how much I like it. And let me tell you, um, you know, I, I was, I, I hated to see um, our friend from California to step out of the role of, of, of Congress. I, I really hated to, hated to see him leave. Uh, but uh, Mike, Mike Turner is doing a phenomenal job. And I have been thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly impressed. And I'd love to sit underneath him as chair and see, what the, and see the committee work in a different way because I've only got to sit underneath, uh, I've only got to sit, under, sit underneath David, or not David Nunes, but, uh, but um, Adam Schiff. Right. And and so I'd love to see that. So I'd love to get back on it on this Intel on the House side, or the Senate side and then we can work together. All right. The hardest question of all, Congressman, you're going to want and all your political advisors are going to advise you not to answer this question. I can hear them right now. <laughs> You've got something once a year. I hope it continues forever. We call it Bedlam. It's Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State in college football. Yeah. Who do you pull for in Bedlam? Well, Bedlam is definitely Oklahoma. Um, I'm an Oklahoma State guy, uh, but uh, I pull for Oklahoma when Oklahoma's playing Texas. It's always horns down right here, horns down constantly. But Oklahoma's not looking so good right now. Uh, that they didn't they didn't look good. Um, they didn't look good against Kansas State. They didn't look good against uh, TCU. So. I think our bet on this year may be when Oklahoma State plays Texas. Y'all have a great coach. Brent Venables is a defensive mastermind. He came from Clemson. Yeah. He did a yeah. so give him time. Give him time. He, he came from he was in Oklahoma, remember? That's and, right. And then he went to Clemson. And I wasn't I said I said this today in, in Oklahoma City actually at a meeting. And I was like, I'm not I've never been a friend fan of him. I just I just wasn't. I wasn't a fan when he was running our defense. I hate preventative defense. It's not the way I ever do things. I've always been taught to go towards pressure, put pressure on them, break them. You know, when I was wrestling, uh, my whole thing was, is you may beat me the first period. If you let me stay around to the second period, I'm going to be tied with you in the third period. I'm going to break you. I'm going to mentally break you. I don't want you to ever be. And same thing when I was fighting. If you let me stick around to the fifth round, 
I, you're going to wish to guy that never happened because I got one gear. I'm coming after you the whole time. And he has a tendency to play preventive defense. I hate it. it drives me crazy. And so when he came in to take over on the um, take over on the uh, on, for Oklahoma, I'm an Oklahoma fan. I went to Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State's first. I, I don't. A lot of Oklahoma State can't stand Oklahoma. I, I I root for Oklahoma every time they're playing anybody but Oklahoma State. I want to see them do well. But I didn't. I didn't like the choice. I wasn't a fan. Well, I'm gonna do something that is the surest sign of the apocalypse. Me defending a Clemson football coach. But when he was a defensive coordinator, because I'm a South Carolina Gamecock, when he was the defensive coordinator at Clemson, I don't think we ever got a yard. I mean, his defense is – so, we shall see. The only time you guys had a really good shot is when Lou Holtz was your old coach. We had Spurrier. Spurrier. Okay. Okay. Like, truly, true statement there. Uh, And we got Shane Beamer. And you don't go to sleep on Shane Beamer. Well, I'm not – I'm not sure that 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 the Gamecocks versus Clemson Tigers are as good analogy of only gaining one yard. Let's talk about Georgia's football playing against them or something. Well, they play Georgia. I, my prediction is Brent Venables is going to have a great defense at Oklahoma. Yeah, I hope. I hope Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. I hope it's a great game. Texas, Oklahoma always is. Look, you are. Oh, you, you said Bedlam, not Texas. I'm sorry. I was thinking the Red River Shootout because that one's first. Yeah, My Red bad. River. Red. Uh, they're both huge, huge. Yeah, but I said Bedlam, Bedlam. I'm an Oklahoma State guy. I'm be Oklahoma. I thought he was. I, my brain went wrong a while ago. So, well, look, you, you've got. I stopped counting at a dozen. You got a dozen children. You've got two dozen jobs, and you're running for the United States Senate. I don't think anyone has asked you about Bedlam. I don't think that that's really the first huge, one. Yeah. Okay. So well, my, my, my oldest boy just, he just accepted a scholarship today actually for, for, uh, to, to go wrestle for Oklahoma state too. So I'm kind of excited about that. They got a great wrestling program. Unbelievable. Great. Unbelievable. All right. Well then I will let you go with this one question and then I will let yeah. you go back to campaigning. Okay. Jim Jordan wrestles Mark Wayne Mullen. In our prime, he beats me. I got him today. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you think Jimmy's not in his prime. He's not in his prime anymore. <laughs> in, his, I don't in, his know. Prime, in his prime, he was a lot better wrestler than I was. President Trump asks us every time we're together, who wins? Oh, he does. He asks oh, every time, every single time. And, uh, and, uh, and I said, well, considering I switched to jujitsu and MMA, I definitely got it. <laughs> but, but Jim, Jim, man, let me tell you, that guy is good. And I'd still hate to hook up with him, but there's no way I'm going to let him beat me. I'm just going to – I'm just younger <laughs> at this point. <laughs> well, I look forward to one day having both of y'all on the golf course, which is probably the only place I can beat either one of you. So that's where we're headed. Good. I'll, I'll, be, that. I'll, be, I'll be great at carrying your clubs. <laughs> I'm a horrible golfer. <laughs> well, I, that's okay. So is Lindsey Graham, and I play with him. So don't worry about that one bit. <laughs> Mark Wayne Mullen, it is great catching up with you. Uh, uh, if you can stay alive, I think you're going to be in the United States Senate. I hope you and Lankford work out sissy or Senate intel. And yeah. we, we look forward to watching your race between now and November. Well, since you said stay alive, this is what we used to tell our guys when we go out doing the work I used to do, stay alive or die trying. So if, I, if, I, if I'm not alive, I'd die trying staying alive. <laughs> Amen. Uh, thank you. It's great catching right. up with you. And thank you for giving, uh, giving our listeners a glimpse uh, inside your background. 
And I learned things about you that I did not know, even though we served together. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for that. Best of luck to you and your family. Thanks, brother. Talk to you later. All right. Take care, Mark Wayne.